Let's pray. Our Father, we do stand in awe that the Son of Man, the one you are sending from heaven to rule over all kingdoms, came to serve and sacrifice himself. Lord, we ask you to help us grasp and appreciate what that means. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. About a year ago, I was working with a, uh, another American missionary in Papua New Guinea, and we were talking about the Lord and, and His care for people. And I said something about God's concern for people, and I was surprised. He said, uh, he said well, I don't think God's really that interested in individuals. Uh, God is really working with forming a nation of obedient people, the bride of Christ. And that would have surprised me. It still surprises me a little bit when I hear a Christian say that. But there have been a number of times over the years when I've actually had believers say something to that effect, that individuals don't really mean that much to God. He's working on this big cosmic plan. Um, um, A year or two before that, I'd had another Christian brother say that he didn't think God was really interested in unimportant people that he was interested in people that were doing big things in life. And at first I thought he meant that God used people to do big things for the kingdom, but that's not what he meant. He specified, no, I just think people have important jobs and influential position. Those are the ones God's interested in. Uh, I've heard several comments like that, and it really surprises me when I hear Christians say that, because even non-Christians even people that don't believe in God or the Bible, they still have this idea that Christians at least claim an importance of Christian charity and God is the God of the orphan and the widow and Mother Teresa and stuff like that. <clears throat> so it surprises me when I hear Christians say God's not interested in individuals. Um, I don't think there's very many Christians that actually would come out and say that. But if we kind of come at it from the other direction... I think probably there's been most of us when we've really been in a difficult situation in our life. It really kind of feels like that. It really kind of feels like God's not interested in me as an individual because it sure doesn't look like He's taking care of me. Well, we want to address that this morning. And what we're going to look at is some passages where God, partly He explains what He's doing, But a lot of what's in the Bible is God showing us what He's like. Uh, When Jesus was in His ministry, He did a lot of formal teaching, but a lot of what He was doing with His disciples was saying, just watch me. Watch what I do. And when we read the Old Testament, that's what we see. Um, A bare-bones outline of Old Testament history might only take about 50 pages, but instead what we've got is 800 pages of watching God work in people's lives. Certainly God is at work on a worldwide national scale. We see God call a guy named Abram, and he's taking him away from the nations that are in rebellion against him. And God sets up this worldwide plan and national plan. Abraham, from your descendants, I'm going to make a great nation that I'm going to use to bless all the other nations in the world But first, you're going to spend 400 years in Egypt and basically kind of incubate until you become a big nation. 
So he's got this big national plan, and yet, as God tells us about that, at the same time, there's this long, drawn-out story about this dysfunctional family that they're ignoring God. There's all kinds of plans for murder. There's lying, cheating, stealing. There's adultery. There's, I mean, it's a pretty sordid story. There's stuff going on in there that I don't read out loud in the congregation when there's little kids in here. And you think, what in the world is all that about? You know, when God wanted... Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus to go to Egypt, what did he do? He just said, go to Egypt, and they went to Egypt. And when he wanted to come back, he said, come back, and they came back. But in Genesis, we got 14 chapters of this sordid story about these individuals. And we see God working in their life. We see the same thing in the next big step of the national plan God has for Israel after God sends uh, Moses and Aaron to lead the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And uh, Joshua Joshua leads them in and they have the conquest and they get established. And there's, there's three or four hundred years of going through the judges where God is working on the international scene to establish them as a nation. And they have all the interactions. The judges come and go as, as fight leaders depending on their obedience to the Lord. And all of a sudden in the middle of this huge national news there's a story about a lady named Naomi who is you can't be more of a nobody than a Naomi especially in a culture like that Carrie and I have seen that in a, in a clan based society Naomi is a widow who's destitute she's got nothing she's got her foreign daughter-in-law in tow who's also a widow and not only that but she's pretty unhappy with God She's quite bitter at God with the life that He's given her. Why does God tell us that story? Now, I know there's tagged on at the end that Ruth is the great-grandmother for King David. Okay, national setting. That still doesn't explain why God tells us this whole story about this nobody lady. We say the same thing in the next step where there's a huge turning point when uh, the nation Israel begins having kings. This beginning now of empire and dynasties. There's King Saul, King David, King Solomon. The prophets are being sent. And again, there's all this story on the national and international scene. And yet in the middle of this, we find out about this very reluctant prophet, Jonah, who got given a job to do, and he didn't want to do it. He was reluctant. He was a hypocrite. He was angry at God. And we've got this whole story of God dealing with this guy. When, I mean, what would we do in an American business? <laughs> Fire the guy, get somebody else. And yet God gives us this whole story about this individual. Um, I'll tell a story about my son, partly to brag on him. When our second son was finishing up grad school, he applied for jobs different places, and he got a job in Minnesota which we were glad he had a job. Sorry, it was in Minnesota. He got a job in Minnesota, and uh, he got to be good friends with his boss, uh, who was also a strong believer. His boss was a believer, and they got to be good friends. And my son learned the story of how he got the job. And about the time Levi was applying for jobs in his field, this fella up in Minnesota, this boss, he had gone to the same school Levi did. 
And so he contacted one of the professors at this university to get some um, suggestions for who he might hire, and it happened to be Levi's uh, graduate advisor. But this was the story. This guy contacted the professor at the university and said, said, Doc, here's the things I here's the job, here's what I need. And he said, here's what I really want. I want somebody that knows his stuff and will do the job and won't bring a lot of drama to the office. All of you have been in offices, you've all had jobs. He says, I don't need any more drama. Send me someone that will just do the job and I don't have to hold his hand. And the prof said, I've got your man, Levi. So Levi got the job. Well, that's a neat story, and I'm a proud dad. But you know what? Levi has had drama in his life. Some of you know about it. Some of his own making, some not. It was other people. But Levi has had drama in his life. So have you. So have I. There's nobody in this room who has not had a lot of drama with more to come. A lot of you are in the middle of it right now. But what we see is God is not like a corporate executive who just wants somebody who will do the job with no drama. What we see with Joseph and Judah and his brothers, what we see with Naomi, what we see with uh, Jonah, is while God is accomplishing His worldwide plan, He is intimately concerned with the drama in every individual's life. No matter how insignificant they are in the world's eyes. And this carries on into the New Testament. We get into the New Testament and the Son of David comes. This is the Anointed One. Finally, He's here. It's dawning on the disciples that this Jesus guy from Nazareth, he's the guy. They still don't really grasp who he is. They think, this is the guy God said he was going to send. It's now the time you're going to set up your kingdom. Look at the temple. Look at the stones. Man, this is a beautiful place. Jesus was always throwing him a curve, wasn't he? I love that thing. What would Jesus do? I'm sure the disciples say, we have no clue. (laughs) The Messiah is here. And they're going back to Jerusalem and says, and Jesus says, I gotta go through Samaria. What? They go to get food and they come back, and he's sitting at the well talking to a lady who's a Samaritan. She's as far as we know, she's got no name. She's in a marginalized society. She's from a people group that got she's a descendant of a people group that got forcefully settled against their will in that land centuries before, and she's a descendant of that, and they've never really incorporated into the national culture. Some of this may sound familiar to the situations in America today. She was also immoral. She was unclear about true worship. She's the kind of person that a lot of people in America would like to kick out of the U.S. because they're going to goof up our country. And that's exactly how the disciples would have felt about her. But Jesus said, i got to go through Samaria. There's a lady I need to talk to. The son of David, the Messiah. i got to talk to this lady. Well, why is that? Why is it 
that God is doing this kind of thing. We're going to look at our main passage for the uh, message today, and that's in 1 Samuel 8. And what we're going to see is that while God is at work on a universe-wide plan of restoration that involves nations and uh, international relations, he's a kingmaker and a kingbreaker, at the same time he's interested in every individual. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. First Samuel chapter 8 is a really pivotal chapter in the Old Testament because there's an enormous truth in First Samuel chapter 8 that's kind of, it's one of those things that's, uh, it's an enormous truth that's hiding in plain sight. This is a huge turning point. This is actually right in the middle of the 2,000 years between God calling Abraham and saying, I'm going to make of you a nation and bless the nations through you, and the coming of Messiah is 2,000 years. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're right dead in the middle. We're about 1,000 B.C. For 1,000 years, God has been leading His people directly, occasionally appointing Moses or a judge, but He's been their king. And we come to... 1 Samuel 8, and I'm going to begin reading in verse, my paper says 4, but I don't believe that. Um, Oh, okay. I put my bookmark on the wrong page. We are going to begin reading in chapter, in verse 4. 1 Samuel 8, chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> at this time, Samuel was the last judge, and Samuel's sons were really humbug, and the people didn't want to follow them. So, verse 4, The elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. It's sad how often that happens in the Old Testament. It's sad when it happens in our lives, too, isn't it? Now, this is what the people said. Appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That should knock the wind out of you. Why did God call Abram? He said, because I'm going to make a nation from your descendants that are not like them. And after a thousand years, they say, you know what? We actually don't like you and we want to be like them. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king. So Samuel prayed to Yahweh, and Yahweh said to Samuel, You listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they've done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to today, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they're doing to you also. Some of you will be meeting this afternoon to go out and share the gospel. And a lot of people you share the gospel with are going to reject you, but they're rejecting God is who they're rejecting. 
Verse 4. Uh, nine. Excuse me. Now then, listen to their voice, however. You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the, my Bible says procedure. You can put custom or, or manner of ruling of the king who will reign over them. So what's he doing? He's saying, all right, I'm going to let you have a human king, but here's what it's going to be like. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the habitual behavior or manner of leading of a king who will reign over you. Now, this is the truth hiding in plain sight. The whole point God is making when he says this is he said, this is what a human king is like. And I'm, it's not like me. I'm not like that. Let's see what he says. The king will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. They'll run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He'll also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and then you, and you yourselves will become his servants. Verse 18, And you'll cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. I think because we're people of the ground, we read what these kings are going to do, and we think, well, that's what rulers do. That's what kings do. That's what CEOs do. That's what my boss does at work. That's what I try to do with my family at home. But God is saying, I'm not like that. I'm going to jump the gun here a little bit. What does he say? What does he focus on? He focuses on the king is going to take your sons and use them for his pleasure. Is that starting to ring some bells? What does God do? God sends his son to serve us. It is polar opposite of what these kings do. Verse 19, it goes on. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king like the nations who will go out and fight our battles. What battles? had a hard time deciding how far to push this. We saw a lot of Christians do this in the last presidential campaign. I'm not talking about politics, who you agree with or disagree with on foreign policy or economics. But when Christians are saying what the church needs is a king like the nations who will go out and lead our battles, fight our battles for us, we're going to find that the Lord has something to say about that. 
Well, we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 2. I could pick lots. We're going to look at a few passages that are going to show this played out. All through the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see this happen. If you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. This is one of those stories that you're reading along and you think, why in the world is that in there? But we're going to read it and we're going to see that all through the rest of this, the God, is, God is going to show us the truth of what He just told us in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is just one example. Where we are at this point is the first king, Saul, has died. And you recall because of King Saul's rebellion against God, God had said, I'm going to remove you and replace you with David. And Saul spent the rest of his life kicking and screaming and fighting against relinquishing his kingdom to David. And even after Saul died, Saul's general, Abner, and some of Saul's people are still trying to hang on to the kingdom and not turn it over to David. Um, and so there's a civil war going on. And so where we pick it up in verse 12 is we've got Abner, the son of Ner, who went out from Menachim to Gibeon, and the servants of Ishbosheth, son of Saul. So Abner, King Saul. And over here, Joab, son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out. And so they met at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down one on one side of the pool and one on the other side of the pool. Okay, there's a civil war. We got King Abner and Saul's side. We got Joab and David's side over here. Now, I'm going to suggest that you change a couple of words in your Bible, and I'll explain why. This may get a little bit distracting giving some technical stuff. Um, you can understand the point of this passage without doing what I'm about to suggest, but it will be easier to understand the point of the story if you'll at least consider what I'm going to show you. If you'll get a pencil and one word that you don't need to change it, but I would suggest you circle it, is in verse 14, it's going to say, Abner said to Joab, now let the young men arise. You can just circle young men. And it occurs again in verse 21. Young men. That Hebrew word means young men. You can circle that. And we'll talk about why that's significant in a moment. Now there's two words I'd like to suggest that you write something else over it. In verse 14 it says, Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and... There is no telling what your translation says. Mine says hold a contest... Some say fight hand-to-hand. There's all kinds of things in there. What this word actually is in Hebrew is basically get up and play or laugh. The word occurs over 50 times, and it's usually translated laugh, either laugh or cause to laugh. It's often translated entertain, play, um, amuse, Um, And in fact, this is the word that occurs when Samson has been captured by the Philistines and they've punched his eyes out and he's in prison and the Philistine leaders are all just having a party and they think, hey, I know what would be fun. 
Let's get this Samson. Let's get him out and let him entertain us. It's this word. Let's let him come out and entertain us. Um, The other word that I would like to suggest that you change is get down in verse 16. And it says, each one of them seized his... Your Bible probably says opponent. Okay. What I'd like you to put down there is either neighbor or friend. What the Hebrew word here is, is reah. Uh, Reah occurs... um, Oh, I don't even remember how many times. But it's usually translated neighbor or friend. Uh, Like in Leviticus 17, when it says, Love your neighbor as yourself, it's this word. Um, In Proverbs 17, where it says, A friend loves at all times, a brother is born for adversity, it's this word. Um, Of all the times that it occurs, I think it's like 250 times in the Old Testament, this is the only place anyone puts anything like this. Everywhere else, it's friend, associate, companion, neighbor, Okay, now, um, here's what's going on, and I'm a Bible translator, and somebody could come and take my Finney translation, they could do the same thing, they could say, David, why in the world did you translate that that way? Well, I, I think I can tell you what the translators were doing here. What the, what the English translators are wanting to do is they're wanting to be sure that an English audience is clear about what's happening that these guys are fighting. They're wanting you to be clear about what is happening. And they chose their vocabulary that way. But the original writer in Hebrew, he chose his vocabulary to emphasize the attitude with which they were doing it. Example. When uh, Jesus heard that King Herod was doing such and such, what did Jesus say? He said, Go tell that fox such and such. Well, does fox mean Herod? No, it never means that. Why did he say that? He's revealing something about his attitude about King Herod. And you can imagine an English translator saying, well, Americans won't understand that refers to King Herod, so I'm going to change fox and put Herod. Well, that's what the translators have done here. So I'm not asking you to change it. I'm just asking you to put it back the way Hebrews said it. Because it will be easier to get the point of the story. Okay, hopefully all that technical stuff didn't distract you. Now let's read the story the way the Lord intended for us to read it. And so we understand the point. So, verse 14. We've got the civil war going on. So one general, Abner, says to the other general, Joab, Now let the young men arise and amuse us. And Joab said, All right. Let them arise. So they rose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, twelve for the servants of David. And each one of them seized his neighbor by the head and thrust his sword into his neighbor's side, so they fell down together. The Lord is wanting to emphasize for us what a horrible thing and how, just how wrong and inappropriate this is. That these are brothers and friends. They're fighting. They're fighting against each other. And what happens? All of them perish. There's not a winner. They are all perishing. 
I want to add another. We've got how many former military do we have in here? It's not as many as I thought, but we have several. I want to talk about the reason I circled this young men. Young men gets used a lot of different ways. Uh, Often it actually means young men, but it's also used as a diminutive to mean people of lower standing. And often in these contexts, all of these things you can look in commentaries. I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, Young men is in contrast to guys like Joab and Abner who are sar, sarin. They are princes. They're officers and the young men are enlisted. And what we're going to see as we read uh, this is the callous disregard that these high-level leaders have for human life, especially among the enlisted, the young men. But they have a different attitude about themselves. Let's keep reading. So that day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Verse 18. Now the three sons of Zariah were Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. And you know the story. They take off after Abner, and Asahel is faster than the others, so he's about to catch up. He's about to catch up to Abner. In verse 20, Abner's running, and he looks over his shoulder, and he sees Asahel coming. Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It's I. And Abner said to him, Turn to your right or turn to your left, and take hold of one of the young men for yourself, and take for yourself his spoil. Do you realize what he's saying? That's one officer saying to another, Hey, don't chase me. Get one of those guys. Kill him and take his stuff. But Asahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Oh, now all of a sudden we're concerned about fighting and killing each other? It's hard for me to imagine nowadays, but I know there have been times in history where armies actually kind of had agreements that officers wouldn't kill each other. It's just let the... Let the infantry kill each other. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt of the spear. And so Asahel died. And so Asahel's two brothers, they keep, fight, they keep chasing him. In Abner, verse 26, Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Well, that sounds fine for Abner to say that. Now, why didn't he say that before the battle ever started? One thing that happens throughout Old Testament narrative especially is how inconsistent people are. Because you and I are too, aren't we? But what that shows is that at some level, Abner knows that what he's doing is wrong. He knows that they're They're Israeli brothers and they shouldn't be fighting. And yet, in this other context, throughout the Scripture we see stories like this. And what God is showing us is these rulers and kings are not like Him. And the people are paying the price that He told them in 1 Samuel that they were going to pay for wanting human kings rather than allowing him to be their leader. Can I just encourage you when you, when you read the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament narrative, 
you just kind of drone along and it's just one thing happens after another and it's easy to miss the point that the writer's making. We tend to think of King David and Hezekiah. We tend to think of these people as heroes. And so we pick isolated incidents where they, in fact, do obey the Lord. And we pick those and we think, oh, there's a model to emulate. But if you actually read the story that God gives us in here, David, throughout his life, one miserable failure after another. King Solomon, the wisest man, he's a lot wiser than either any of us in here. And yet, time and again, his life as a leader of the people was a miserable failure compared to God. This shows up. I have some references there that you can look up uh, in 2 Samuel um, <clears throat> 8. There's places where we see that David at times, God did use David and David did at times respond well. But we also see in 1 Chronicles 28, um, this may be the only one of these that I read, in 1 Chronicles 28, um, oh, I was going to mention that we see that, we see David do the same thing that Abner was. Uh, David will show a great deal of compassion and sorrow about high-level leaders. He does that about when King Saul dies in 2 Samuel 1 with Abner, this enemy, in 2 Samuel 3, and Ishbosheth in 2 Samuel 4. David will seem like he has a lot of compassion, but if you read the story, it's almost always for other generals and kings. David was absolutely ruthless on the little guy. If you read what's in here, the way he treats uh, um, uh, Nabal and messengers and these people with no name that just drift in and out of the scene, if you read those, you'll see that David was very, very callous and had a very low value of human life. And, uh, and, and that's in here. And what we find... In 1 Chronicles 28, the only reason we know this is because David tells on himself. Neither the chronicler nor the writer of 1 Samuel tell us this. David tells on himself, chapter 28, line 2. It's the end of his life. He's about to die. And King David rose to his feet and he said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I'd made preparations to build it. He wanted to build a temple. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. By itself, that might not mean much. But if you read David's life, you'll see what that's talking about. Uh, We see the same thing with Solomon that Solomon asked for wisdom, but actually there are passages in here that talk about Solomon levied extremely heavy forced labor on the Israelites. In fact, so much so that they were going to rebel against his son and say, man, if you treat us like your son did, we're not having it. And his son Rehoboam did what? He said, well, I'm going to make it worse. My dad whipped you with whips of cord. I'm going to whip you with a whip of scorpions. They're doing what God said the kings would do. Rehoboam did the same thing, and in fact, the nation split. You can look at those passages sometime on your own, but the point is, if you read what's actually in the Old Testament, 
rather than select the little stories that we like to put in Christmas cards and things like that, if you read what's really there, it's a very sobering picture. Sideline, I've probably said a hundred times up here that one of the biggest surprises to me when I became a Christian and started actually reading the Bible is that the Bible looks real life right square in the eye. And I had grown up in church where church was just kind of this little fluffy stuff. God looks life right straight in the eye and tells the truth. And some of it hurts, but some of it is glorious. And we come to our scripture reading. We'll go back to Matthew 20 again. Where are we? <clears throat> I usually don't manuscript my messages, and I never really know how long they are. In Matthew 20, we're going to see again that the King of Kings is not like earthly kings. He is exactly the opposite. And that's the point of this passage. We're going to read it again. Verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he'll be raised up. This is another one of those passages that is probably hard for us to respond to this the way Jews would have responded to that. Because he starts out saying, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they'll condemn him to death. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Where's that title come from? Where's that label, Son of Man? It gets used a lot of ways. It gets used for different people and in different ways, but Jesus is using it a specific way, referring to a specific thing. What is it? Somebody sing out. I know a bunch of you know. Let's think about the fact that Jesus, if He is our Lord, and this is the title He most frequently used of Himself, probably worthwhile that we understand what he meant when he used it. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. As you're turning there, I think it's curious. While this is the title that Jesus most often used to refer to himself, I only know of one other place in the New Testament where someone else referred to Jesus as the Son of Man. Uh, there are about three other places in the New Testament where there's, they're quoting this passage from Daniel. But uh, I think Peter just, I mean, excuse me, Stephen, just before he died, he said, I see the Son of Man. I think that's the only place someone else refers to Jesus as this. Daniel chapter 7, line 13. Leading up to this, Daniel has been given a vision about what's going to happen. 
And this vision involves images of these beasts, but we don't have to wonder what that is. We're just told in here that those represent different nations in the world that are in rebellion against God. Okay? Um, So we know that's what's going on. So we're talking about kingdoms. We're talking about um, Babylon and Assyria. We're talking about Rome. We're talking about Canada and the United States and Russia. All of those are included. We're talking about national scene. And the leaders of these nations are pictured as animals, as beasts. But now something different comes up. Line 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He's not like the other national leaders. They're pictured as animals. This one is like a son of man who was made in God's image. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. We're talking about God the Father there. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language, even Finney, might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And the disciples said, Jesus, it's him. It's him. And Jesus says, this king of kings is going to be arrested and executed as a criminal. That's crazy. That's not how we do things in the world. Back in Matthew 20, we continue reading. We saw in the first, the last half of verse 3, uh, once again, I'm on the wrong page. I haven't had my pages marked and I'm getting lost. <clears throat> Thank you. And we see at the end of verse 19 that on the third day he will be raised. Praise God, he did not stay dead. He did not stay dead. Well, why is that going to happen? Why on earth is the king of kings going to be turned over and killed as a criminal? Well, we have the whole thing that even after saying that, Mama comes up wanting her two little boys to have the best seats. And they're obviously on board with that because they start, the pronoun switches to they. Yeah, we're all on board with this. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? They had no clue what they were talking about. Sure. All right. So the others were indignant. Verse 25, But Jesus called and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's what we've been reading this whole time, haven't we? That's what the Old Testament is about. Hey people, if I leave you to run your own affairs, it's going down the toilet. 
And there are great men exercise authority over them. That's just as true today as it was then. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is what doesn't compute. Earthly leaders think, how can I use you and your children to serve me? But the God of heaven, the creator of all things, said, I am going to send my son to die to rescue individual people. And those individual people will be my kingdom. Those who believe in him. And he's saving people one by one by name, individuals. I think when Jesus was hanging on the cross, we can think, oh, there's this global thing going on. Jesus is dying for the sins of the world to establish an eternal kingdom of multitudes before the heaven. And he's talking face to face to the guy on the cross next to him. And the testimony throughout Scripture is that before God even made the sun and lit the fires on the sun, he said, there's a woman named Cece. I know her by name. I know the number of hairs on her head. And she is a disrespectful, disobedient... uh, I made a list. (laughs) She's a disrespectful, disobedient, rebellious person, just like every other man, woman, and child on earth. But I am going to send my son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to die on the cross for her. And Jesus, the son, said, Father, I'll do it. And the father and the son said, we're going to send the Holy Spirit to change her heart and make her my child. And the Holy Spirit said, I'll do it. That's why God is not like earthly kings. When uh, we were living in Papua New Guinea, my son and I were playing chess one day, and it was uh, was really hot. We're out in the bush in a village, no electricity or anything. So we were sitting out under the in the shade under a tree playing chess, and there was a young single guy in the village that we know. He he was happened to be passing by the house, and he saw us. And he didn't say anything. He just came and sat in the grass. And he just sat and he just watched us. And it must have been at least 10 or 15 minutes went by. And finally he said to us in English, he said, Friend, I am not getting it. (laughs) And you can imagine if you didn't know chess and you were just watching, you'd never figure out what was going on. And that's even with chess being pretty good reflection of life pretty good reflection of life in this world, isn't it? Because what happens in chess? You've got the king. And what's the job? Protect the king. What about the pawns? You've got this long row of faceless, nameless nothings, you know. And We even use that as an expression in life. Well, I'm just a pawn in the game of life. You know, flick them here and there, here and there. It's all about saving the king. But the world sure can't figure out watching God manage His kingdom because it's exactly backwards. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords sacrificed himself to save the pawns. To save the pawns from the other side. One by one, by name. Because it's his love for them. And his, because of his power, death couldn't hold him. And, de- and death or no other power can take each pawn that he saves by name. Nothing can take them out of his hand. God is not like earthly kings. And God does care. And God cares about you even when it doesn't feel like it. Naomi is one of my favorite characters in the Bible because I so identify with her. She knows that she should trust Yahweh, but it sure didn't look like he was taking care of her. He was. I think one of the main ways God wants us to know what He's like and our confidence and faith in Him to grow is just read the stories. God recorded these so we could see what He's like. Just read them and let God show you what He's like and let the Holy Spirit convict your heart that that really is true. If you're here this morning and you've never really trusted the Lord to take care of you, Now is the morning to do it. God has shown us that He is a righteous God. He is a King that's going to judge sin. And for those that want to stand up for God and take responsibility for their own life, He's going to let you do it. But you're going to spend an eternity in hell. But God has sent His Son to die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And whoever will just confess to God, Yes, Lord... I am a sinner. I deserve your judgment. But Lord, thank you for your grace. I believe that your son did die for my sins and raised from the dead. Lord, save me. He will do that. You'll be one of the pawns in his hand that he knows by name and knows the numbers and the hair on your head. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you. Lord, this is more than we can grasp. Lord, we understand why Paul prayed for the Ephesians that that you would enable them to grasp the breadth and depth of your love. Lord, we need that. We need you to help us. Lord, what you are like is so completely different from anything we experience in this world. Lord, we can't even imagine it. Lord, thank you for showing us who you are in your word. And I pray your spirit would open up our eyes to grasp this and to rest in the love that you have for us, Lord. Lord, I pray that anyone that's here this morning that has not trusted you, that your spirit would quicken their heart to believe you. And for all of us, Lord, I pray that today would be a day where you strengthen our confidence in you, that even as you allow, you may be allowing hardship in our life right now, that you do love us and you're doing that for our good. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust you and we look forward to when your son, the son of man, does in fact return with clouds of glory from heaven to establish his reign on earth now and forever. We pray in his name. Amen.